Okay, we're going to be starting the book of Luke today, um, which means, of course, if you've been around long enough, you know that the start of a book is always the introduction on who wrote it, who it was written to, uh, why, if we can have a note, and a little bit about the, um, uh, yeah, direction that the book is going in. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us as we start this new book and, and guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see and go through this in Jesus' name. Amen. This book is by Luke. Uh, it's not always true that it's named after who it was written to, but in this case, it's written to uh, by Luke. What do we know about Luke? Not a whole lot as, you know, as far as we go. We know that Luke is a physician according to... Uh, uh, Colossians 4.14, Paul says that Luke, the beloved physician, is with him. Uh, we know that Luke traveled with Paul. It appears that he came with Paul in the middle of his second trip at Troas, uh, because when he's, Luke was also the writer of Acts. And at that point, the, the pronouns come start switching from he and they to we. <laughs> All right, so that we believe that he st started with Paul at Troas, and he's going to be with Paul all the way till when Paul is imprisoned in Rome, the, uh, Luke stays with him and ministers to Paul and, and treats his various injuries. Uh, we think sometimes we think about, well, he was a doctor way back then. They didn't know anything. <laughs> Now, these doctors were just as well-trained. They went through school. They went through, they went through their practice with another doctor watching them. They knew how to do maybe not as intricate of surgeries as we do, but they could do surgeries. They could, they could uh, fix people up, and he was well-trained. He was well-educated. He would have gone through their equivalent of college to go there, and uh, he was most likely a Greek man. His Greek in the, in the books that he wrote, Acts and Luke, are some of the most advanced Greek it, that is in the Bible. So he was very educated, very well written. Um, and uh, he was writing this book to a man called Theophilus, because he tells us in verse 3, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, Theophilus. We have, there's much debate on whether Theophilus was an actual person or to the church in general, but he uses a term that makes us think, he said, oh, excellent Theophilus, and the term of excellent is one that Paul used when he addressed Felix and Festus, which were two kings. It was the same term he used there, so we believe, or many believe, that Theophilus was a Roman official somewhere, or, or a, some people believe he was a high priest because there were two high priests that had the name Theophilus in their name, so it could be, uh, I kind of doubt that one, but it, you know, it's a possibility. Could be that he was just writing to Christians, uh, but to the majority and what I mo heard most of my life is that he was writing to some Roman leader by this name. Many people think it might have been a Theophilus who was in Antioch, which would make sense because that's where they kept going back and forth from. They would start their trips from Antioch and end their trips at Antioch. And that's where a very large church was. Uh, so just a little bit of history on that. Uh, we're not really sure. We do know he was educated. When was this written? Well, we know that Luke was written before the book of Acts because Acts refers back to his previous book, and they're both written to the same people. 
We know that Acts was written about two years before Paul died, which would have been about 62, uh, 64 AD. So the book of Acts was written at 62 AD, roughly. So this book would have been written sometime before 62 AD. Um, this is very interesting. When you start looking at the dates of books, there's a lot of modern day scholars, supposed scholars, <laughs> that try to put all these New Testament books into the first century. They want to spread the distance from Jesus to not be eyewitnesses. And they really have some big problems with it, which we're not going to go into this. But the biggest problem that we know that probably no New Testament book was written after 70 AD is that these were all Jewish writers. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would have been a big deal to them. And it would have, they would have seen that as the end, end of times. And they would have really been talking about how Jesus is coming because the temple had been destroyed. So it's very, very unlikely that any of the New Testament books were written after 70 AD. Uh, so, but we know that Luke was written well before 62 AD because that is, it had to have been written before Paul died because the book of Acts refers back to this book. So we look at this and we go from on this. Um, the book of Luke is written to Gentiles, Romans in particular. Uh, if you want to keep this in mind, the book of Mar uh, Matthew is written to the Jews. It's very obvious. Everything is about the kingship of Jesus. He makes references to Judaism and Jude Judeo practices without even explaining them because his target audience is the Jews. So when he says we celebrated the, the Festival of Lights, he doesn't have to explain what the Festival of Lights is you know, to people. Uh, in case you don't know, the Festival of Lights is Hanukkah. <laughs> uh, you know, Mark is written to the Greek. And when you read the book of Mark, everything is action-oriented because the Greeks liked action. They, they were always in motion. They were always serving. And they show Jesus in action, in, in service. So it's written to the Greeks. Uh, Luke is writing more to the Romans. Very matter-of-fact, very straightforward. These are the facts. And they were very much somebody who wanted to know. They, the Greeks like, you know, certain of the Greeks like to discuss philosophy. The Romans loved to discuss philosophy and, and spend time on things that weren't all that important. And Luke is putting out a detailed order, and that's what he's going to tell us in the beginning of this. I, I put effort to put this in order and put it in, in, in the right order. Uh, Luke also takes great pains. It's obvious he's not pre uh, teaching and, and writing to the, to the Jews because every time he makes a Jewish reference in the book of Luke, he will explain <laughs> what this was, why they did it, what they were doing, because he knows his audience. He's talking about a Jewish man who is doing things that make sense to a Jew but might not make sense to the Roman, the Roman target audience, so he would explain he went to Passover, which was the celebration of their deliverance out of Egypt, and he spends a lot of time. So for us as non-Jewish believers, if you don't know your Old Testament, Luke is a great book to go into because everything that Jesus does is explained. <laughs> All right, so it's a wonderful thing. And the book of John is written to a general audience. <laughs> it was one of the last ones written, uh, one of the, the last gospel written, and it's John saying, now it's time for me to say what I, I believe. Um, out of the four Gospels, three of them are called Gnos uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels, and that means knowledge. They were all about knowing. John's, and they were all very similar. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all very similar. Most of the stories, if they're in one, is in the other with a different flavor attached to it. The book of John is totally different. <laughs> you know, he doesn't give a lot of the same stories that the rest of them give. 
and his is all about the love of God and God's, and he was very simple. Uh, the Apostle John was known for his simplicity of his message. Uh, there was times when they said he went up in, the, in, in his older age and his message was, children love God. <laughs> and he'd sit down. <laughs> they came to hear this apostle and, you know, and he'd give him just three or four words and he'd go sit down. <laughs> you know, he, he really did have a simple message. And, you know, this is something we need to understand when we talk. And I share this a lot, especially in the weeknight studies. You know, one of the most powerful things that you can tell somebody when you're witnessing to them is God loves you. Or more, even more simply, Jesus loves you. Many people do not believe that God loves them. Some people don't believe that anybody loves them. So when we give them God loves you, they may bristle at it at first, but they'll think about that. Is it really true? Is there a God out there that loves me? And you know, if you're going to witness to other people of other religions, the power of God loves you is even more amplified because we have the only religion that God loves his people. Every other religion, they're up there waiting for God to smash them because they're not good enough. Everything else is about, have I done enough good things to please God? Have I done enough right things to please God? And you tell them that God loves them. You tell somebody who's a follower of Muhammad and, and, and Islam that God loves them. They have no concept of a God of love. They have a God that they know hates them and they have to try to appease by being so good. And this is true of every single religion. It is real easy. Christianity is totally different than every other religion in that it, we know because of the word of God that everything is based on what he did on the cross. Jesus came to this world, lived the perfect life so he could die on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven and I accept the gift of his salvation. Every other religion out there is all based upon good works. Some of them very blatant, do more good than bad, and others are of the Eastern mysticism type or keep going until you get it right. You know, reincarnation, just keep going. I just, I'm going to go and I die and I get to start all over because I wasn't good enough and then I get to start all over because I wasn't good enough. Boy, if, that's tr if that was a true way of life, you would never get there because God says for all of sin and come short of the glory of God and we never, never do good enough and you would be perpetually locked in that, in that re re uh, reincarnation. But they believe you can do more good than bad and finally, finally arrive. You know, and this is something that is really sad. Our gospel, we've got to be careful that we make sure we give them a gospel that is the gospel. Not this idea of doing good works. It is sad how many Christians get saved by faith and immediately get into works. I've got to please God somehow. Well, nothing we do is really going to please him. You know, what does he want us to do? Just as our verse, walk humbly, love him, do mercy. You know, and those are just going to be you're living the way that he has taught us to live. Because when we get saved, we're put in Christ. The Father sees us as perfect. That is the beauty of Christianity. I know that I know that God is going to accept me, not because of anything that I have done or not done, but because Jesus Christ has clothed me in his righteousness. And when I stand before the Father, he looks down at me and says, this is my perfect child. Not just me, but anybody, any of you that have accepted Jesus. All right. Any of us who have Jesus and we've accepted that gift, 
He has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, and we stand perfect before the Father. Now, we know we're not perfect. <laughs> you know, I know I'm not perfect, and all of you who know me know I'm not perfect. You know, uh, and none of you are perfect. You know, so, but the Father says, you are in Christ. The clothing you are wearing is perfect. And this is the beauty of the gospel message that we have. And Luke is going in and he's going to write this gospel message out for the people in his day and his target audience basically becomes us. Now he didn't really think of us in America when he was writing it obviously, but we are from that Roman group that he was writing to. For anybody hearing that noise, it's our swamp cooler that's causing all that noise. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, his purpose, according to what he told us, is very simple. He wanted to give an orderly explanation of the life of Jesus. And he starts from before Jesus is born. He's going to start all the way back at the birth of John the Baptist, go through the birth of Jesus, and then go through his life to the cross and the resurrection. And this was his whole purpose. Uh, many people believe this purpose was when he was writing that he might have been writing a legal brief for the lawyer for Paul, that what Paul believed, why he believed it, so that when they went to court they would have a orderly presentation. And that's a possibility. And that would have been Luke and the book of Acts giving this orderly presentation of what Paul's done, why he's doing it, what he believes in. Uh, and, you know, we. And that goes to the idea, sometimes we think, well, they weren't as organized as we were. Well, our legal system is built upon the Greek-Roman system and the Romans' uh, legal system, and it's been the same way for all, all the time. Most of the time, people had advocates, all the way back to the kings. You stand before the king, and you had this advocate who would, who would present your case, who know, knew the right terms to give to the lawyers and the, and the judges. So it is a possibility that that is true. All I'm looking at is I'm glad he wrote this book <laughs> because it's a very good ordered pre presentation of the gospel message. Um, the outline of this book is real simple. The first four verses tell us the introduction of who wrote it and why. Then he goes into the birth of, um, of um, John the Baptist and Jesus through the first three, three chapters. Then through verses, chapters 4 and 9, he'll talk about the public ministry of Jesus. And then from 9 to verses 23 is all about the Passion Week. Now, if you re recall, there's many times when I've told you, in the, gospel, in the Gospels, they spend very little time talking about Jesus' ministry. A good quarter to one-third of all the Gospel messages are the last week of Jesus. And everything he did in his last week, from resurrecting Lazarus to uh, throwing, the, throwing the money changers out of the temple, going into the triumphant entry, it, announcing that he was the Messiah and the, and the king, uh, to the cross, to the resurrection. The majority of the Gospels are about that period of time, which is the most important period of time for us. This Lamb of God went to the cross willingly and then was resurrected. This is something I want to keep on our minds. When you give your testimony to people, I have heard many testimonies in my lifetime, and many of them will spend, you know, they'll be talking for five, ten minutes, and they'll spend, 
you know, three quarters of the time talking about how bad they were and how awful their life was and how terrible it was. And then they'll go, I got saved, and then it's been good since then. You know, that should not be your testimony. Your testimony should be, you know, yes, I was a bad, bad, terrible person, but I got saved, and look what God has done for me since. You know, God has changed me. Your testimony should be partial. I'm, my sins were taken off. That load of sin was taken off of my back, and, I, and God has walked with me since then. Have there been bad times? Every one of us can say, yes, there's bad times when we're walking with God. But you know what? God is right there with me. And when I'm focused on him, I can walk through those trials and hard times a lot easier than when I tried to do it on my own and tried to fill it without God. And this is the good news. God wants to come in our life, not to take all the trouble away, but that he will carry us through the trouble, through the trials. In the New Testament, they talk about us putting on Jesus Christ, which means we're in Christ. He's the one that takes the, the burden. In Ephesians 6, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. Every piece of that armor is Jesus Christ. And we put on Christ. In the Old Testament, it talked more about that God was our fortress. He was our shield. There were places where they talked about him being the armor. Okay, So it's the same language in the Old Testament, put on Christ. Christ or get in Christ and they would use the term God so we spend our time in Christ you want to get your life in trouble get outside of Christ for a while you know, kind of leave him at home and see the spiritual war attack you instead of him you know this is something that is important and this is what Luke is going to be telling us this is the gospel message this is how God set everything up and he, he's the only one that mentions the birth of John the Baptist, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist as well. He's the only one that talks about the lineage of Mary through that and the going off into Egypt. He talks a lot about things of, of all of this nature, and we're going to be covering this over the coming weeks. You know, but he has this long statement, and he's putting together, here's point one, here's point two. What was he showing us? God is at work. The greatest thing in our life is God is at work in our life. You know, he has a plan for us. Now, sometimes we don't like his plan. Sometimes we wish his plan was a little different. You, know, you all know I love Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good. And there's, you know, for those who love God and called according to his purpose, sometimes I'll ask God, God, could you do a little less of these trial things? I know you've got a good plan, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe we could do something. I don't really understand this one. Could we do something different? And, you know, but it's sitting back and resting. Resting that he has a plan for my life, for your life. And you know what? His plan also affects those who aren't his children. Because sometimes he uses them to be the way that the prayers are answered as well. He doesn't always use Christians to answer your problems. And sometimes he uses these people, the non-Christians, to make us grow. They're oftentimes the ones that help make us not feel like everything's going right. You know, sad thing is sometimes we are the ones that make life difficult for others as well. You know, so we want to be very careful with all of this, that we are going to stay in his plan and just rest. If we can learn to just have faith rest in our life, life goes a lot easier. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to fight. I don't have to try to earn God's forgiveness. I don't have to try to earn his favor. All I have to do is 
rest. Now, does this rest mean I just sit on my couch all day watching TV? No, there's going to be lots of times that I'm going to do a lot of work. All right, I'm going to be studying my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to start opening my mouth and let God fill my mouth with words. But he is not going to stand there and make my mouth work. I am not his marionette puppet that he's saying, okay, start talking. <laughs> go over here. Go over there. I have to learn to listen, be obedient, and take the steps to start. But what I'm saying is we don't sit around worrying. Have I done enough? Did I do it? Do it? Did I do enough? Have I done the right things? Have I done this? Have I done, you know, God, am I, am I serving you enough? I learned to just rest in faith because it's all God's work. I can't do anything. I cannot earn his favor. I cannot earn. I can't even do enough to, to make others want to live on for him. All I, have, all I do is let him come in and change me. He indwells us, and he changes who we are. We sang this song from uh, Corinthians, from glory to glory, he's changing me. Do you realize the beauty of just that statement? From glory to glory. Whenever you think you have arrived with God, God's going to say, you're only, you're only started the trip. You're not there yet. When we walk with God, we keep getting deeper and deeper relationship with God. I learn to love people, and it's very surface love. I love because they're kind of loving me back. You know, that's easy love. Then God starts making us love people who don't love us back. Then we get to where Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who are despitefully using you. Not just your enemies, but the ones that are actively attacking you. And he says, love them. And then when you get to where you can love them, God gives you a stronger enemy that more despitefully uses you to learn to love. From glory to glory, he's changing us. We are never, while we're walking on this earth, going to arrive at perfection. From glory to glory, we're being changed. And that means we cannot get complacent. Well, God, I, I, I'm there. You know, God, I'm... I'm a hundred times better than I was when I first met you, and I'm, I, I'm there. And God says, uh-uh, I'm an infinite God. He has an infinite amount of love, an infinite enough amount of mercy, an infinite amount of grace. And he says, you, know, you may be, and he may agree with you, you are much better than you used to be. But I'm not comparing you to what you used to be. I'm comparing you to me. We need to make sure our focus is not on anybody else and saying, I'm, I've, I've, I've arrived. It's not even on how far I've come. <laughs> my focus is and my comparison is Jesus. How close to God, how close to perfection am I? And my standard is not anybody in this world. No matter who the best person you know or can think of, our focus is not and our comparison is not on them. Our comparison must be to God. Now, when we first start out as Christians, our, our focus is usually on our discipler or the person that led us to the Lord, maybe our Sunday school teacher or the pastor or something. If I can just be like them, I'll be there. And then you start seeing the cracks and the foundation of what they're, you know, on the pedestal you put them on. Our focus must be on God, and our comparison is to God. You know, and I can never look at myself compared to God and say, I have arrived. 
unless I'm fooling myself. If I've done that, I've got a very weak and impowerful God because God's love is infinite. And he will just keep pushing us and saying, okay, you love, you're doing very good. You're, you really love that person really nice. Let's give you somebody harder to love. You get that person down after a period of time, he says, okay, you got that person? And you know what the sad thing is? My experience, you keep pushing that next person on me before I even have time to, to enjoy getting to the level I was at. <laughs> you know, he says, okay, uh, you, you did great now. Let's go, let's go to this next person. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he gives us a, a week, a day, <laughs> before he brings the next person in. But he's trying to get us to grow, to be a greater example of him to the world. And this is what happens when people look at your life. Are they seeing God? Are they seeing the change in you that makes you more like God? And they say, that is what I want. Many times, if you think about it, even for yourself, before you got saved, it was usually you looked at somebody in your, around you that was following God and saying, they seem to, they, they're a little crazy. They don't do all the stuff we do. They don't say the same things we do. But they seem to have something. They seem to be at peace. They seem to have some joy that I don't have. And that draws people. And the closer we get to God, the more that will draw them. But at the same time, it will repel them. Because when they see God, it's just like us. When we are sinning, the last place we want to be is anywhere near God. Now, sometimes, and that's at the time when we forget that God is omnipresent. God, I'm sinning, but I don't want to come. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray because, you know, it's showing me how bad I'm sinning. What are we saying at that time? That we're totally forgetting that God's omnipresent and sees us and is with us anyway. But we all do it. Don't get me wrong. We all do it. But we need to be able to look to God and say, God, I want to draw close to you. And when we truly understand his love and his grace for us, we're willing to come to him, even though we feel terrible because we've made all kinds of stupid mistakes. We go to God and say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. We fall into 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We go, God, thank you. You paid that sin. One thing that we have trouble with as Christians is sometimes we think that God forgave all our sins up to the moment of salvation and somehow didn't pay for the sins after salvation because we knew better. I got news for you. He paid for those sins too. Even though we know better and we do things that we know were wrong, he still died for those sins. And thankfully he did because I'd be in trouble if he didn't. And you would too. If he hadn't died for all of our sins, we'd be in trouble. Because none of us is perfect. None of us will be perfect. And you know, even when we think we've done things right, I don't know how many of you have ever been in this place where you do the right thing in front of people, but you get a little upset with yourself because you weren't thinking the right thing. You know, God, I really good. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't smack that person upside the head and, and run them off the road, but, you know, I really, really wanted to. You know, and we start getting, you know, but this is true. As we get further into God, we may, a lot of people may not even realize some of the things that we're being bothered by. You know, and we go, God, I didn't love that person enough. I wasn't kind enough to that person. Yes, I was kind to them, and I generally really wanted to, but, I, but God, you're really telling me I should have done it even more? I should have gone to the next step? When you get to that place, 
Don't start beating yourself up. Know that you are just getting close enough to God that your comparison is not you, but God as it should be. God has a plan for us. He is the one that we draw our comparison to. We rest in faith in him. And this is what Luke is going to write about. He's going to write about the story of Jesus. We're going to look at the first four verses. I took a long time in the introduction. <laughs> Luke chapter 1, verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they d delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the, of the word, it seemed good for me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write them unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know this with certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. So his point of view on this, and this is something that Luke is going to really push forward. As far as we know, Luke was not an eyewitness. The other one who wrote a gospel who was not the eyewitness, as far as we know, would be Mark. Mark gets most of his information from Peter. All right. Now, many people believe that Luke took a lot of his information from the book of Mark, because Mark is the first one written, as far as we know. Matthew was the second one written, then the book of Luke, and then the book of John. He's going, others have done this. Others have given a ordered uh, discussion. Uh, we know that one of, the Luke, uh, one of the influences of Luke is obviously Paul. He has spent most of his life with Paul. And we'll see a lot of the Pauline messages coming through the, the book of Luke. Uh, but he's, Luke had actually gone out and he had interviewed the different people. He had interviewed John. He had interviewed Peter. He had gone through and he would interviewed all the eyewitnesses. And he says, I'm giving you the eyewitness accounts. And this is very important. The books of the Bible are kind of interesting, especially the New Testament. If you look at all the books for all of antiquity, the books of the Bible and the New Testament were all written within 40 years of the life of Jesus. That's close. You look at all the, and, and people question whether we have the right books, whether we have the right information. We look at the book of the Homer and the Iliad, which nobody questions that the, who wrote them and that they're accurate. We have... The closest copy of that, I think, was 500, uh, 400 years from the original date of writing. And people go, wow, you know, no problem with that. But there's all kinds of problems with the, the New Testament. Why? Because it's God's word. They can't let it be God's word. They cannot let it be accurate because that would give them a problem. If it is accurate, and you know, one of the things we have out there, most of the people that have problems with the Bible have problems for just one reason. If the word of God is true, then that means there's a God. And they're accountable to that God. You know, when we talk about evolution and creationism, there's no science at all for evolution. There's more science for a young earth than there is for evolution. And yet scientists refuse to accept it because that would mean that there is a God. And if there's a God, he can, say, he can give me rules to, to obey. 
most of the world does not want those rules. This is what's going on in our world today. That they're calling everything that is good, bad, and bad, good. And they're trying to say there's no absolute, no absolute truth. That we can just make up whatever we want and that is our truth. You know, and uh, I used to have fun with my college professors when they would say there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I'd raise my hand and say, is that, a, is that an absolute fact? <laughs> it's very amazing that they will tell you absolutely that there is no absolute truth. Which in, in philosophy is a illogical statement. You can't absolutely know that there is no absolute truth. You know, so the very fact that you can't absolutely know that there's no absolute truth means that there must be some truth that is true. Yeah. So their very statement does not stand up to scrutiny. And I've shared this over and over. I love Christianity because Christianity can handle being looked at. In Isaiah, God says, come now and let us reason together. In the book of Job, Job starts complaining and says, if I could just talk to God, I could reason myself out of this and be able to tell God how wrong he was and God comes to him. And the verse says, and I shut my mouth. <laughs> God comes to Job and says, if you know these things, if you're really smart, you tell me. And he gives him a whole bunch of scientific things and says, you explain all these things to me. And he says, I just shut my mouth and didn't speak. We can go before God and listen to him. We can say, God, how do we know that what you've said is true? This is the only religious book that you can go in and not find mistakes in and find contradictions in, and find problems with, and find issues against science. All the other great religious documents have scientific errors. They have contradictions within the, within the pages. We have a God who is logical, reasonable. He is not afraid of questions. Now, I know there are many Christians who are afraid of, afraid of their questions, but you know what? If you don't know the answers, just say, let's find somebody who knows them or give me a moment to find them because they're out there. When somebody will say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible, I will ask them where. I know the four contradictions they're going to come back with, and I know the answers to the four con uh, you know, answers they're going to come back with. They're, they're not hard. You know, it's easy if you just study. Study to show yourself approved of God. Go in and do like Luke says, I've got an ordered presentation. I know what I believe, and I know why I believe. Now, there are places where there's plenty of room for different, country, you know, different ideas in the Bible. They're not salvation. They're not core issues. And, I, and you all know, I've told you all, if you have something that you, do, you believe that I don't believe, fine. As long as you can tell me why you believe what you believe, that's good. I don't care. We could have good discussions and you know, small arguments back and forth about it. You know, you know, and I have no problem. And I've told you, my problem is when somebody puts a flag on the hill and says, I'm going to die over this issue, and if you don't agree with me, then, then you're absolutely wrong. Now, I have a couple of those flags on the, on the hill. Bible is God's word. It's absolutely true. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb who died on the cross and rose again for my, for my salvation. Outside of that, I can't think of anything that I'm going to die. Now, I think some of them are very important. <laughs> I think they have a good problem with, you know, if you believe certain things or some, some definite issues that it leads to some crazy, crazy in, inroads. But you know what? It's not the end of the world. If you can get saved, that's what I care about. And that's because Jesus came to this world and died on the cross so that we could get saved and then he rose again from the dead. 
And then I have to know that every word, if, if every word of this book is not true and valid, I might as well throw it away. Because if I have to sit down and try to figure out what is valid, what is good, what is true, I do not have a book to live by. I have just a book that I get to decide what's right and wrong. And if I'm deciding, who's God? I've just made myself God. This is important in our life. Every word of this book is true or none of it is worth living by. And this is something we have to get in our mind. That is important. Now, I may have difference of opinion on some of those verses and difference of opinion. Not a problem. Come now, let us reason together. You know, explain what you believe and, and talk it over. I love talking with, with some of the chaplains at the prison because not every one of them think the same way I do, surprisingly. They come from different denominations. And it's fun to talk with them. But you know what they all believe? This is God's word. Jesus is the son of God. He died on the cross and rose again for our salvation. And he's the only way to heaven. So we can have all kinds of fun discussions. We can, we can talk about all the places where we have disagreements in. Because they, they're just like me. They don't want to put a flag in the ground and say, well, you've got to believe this on this topic. We need to be able to have peace with one another in the body of Christ. We need to have our focus on Christ and his word. And let his word be final. Now, if you have a difference of opinion about his word, that's fine. Be able to defend what you believe. Study to show yourself a, a workman that w approved of God. Know what you believe. Because I'm, I know that, you know, actually I'd be scared if every one of you believed everything I said. That would be a terrible place to be. <laughs> because if that happened... You know, God forbid that I got off on a wrong tangent and led you off on, uh, into some cultic practices. And you're going, well, we just believe what Pastor says, you know, so we're just going to go, you know, we're going to go wherever he goes. And you know what? There are churches that do that where the pastor says, you must believe what I believe. And I have said very clearly, if you get into a church where so you're in a and the pastor says, you must believe what I believe, get out of that church as fast as you can. Because that pastor may be on target at that moment, but you are being set up to be led astray by the enemy. If you're having a pastor that doesn't praise you for being a good student of the word, Paul said to the Bereans, I thank you because you checked out every word that I said. You go, he goes, you went into the scriptures and proved what I said. And he says, that is good. And I say the same thing to you all. It is good for you to take what I say and go back to the scriptures and say, does this match? Is what's being said true? And know what you believe, why you believe it, and be able to discuss what you believe and why. This was Luke's portion on this. I'm writing this to you so that you will know what you believed and why you believed it, and you'll know the truth of it from the eyewitnesses. Paul said this to the, to the Galatians. He goes, if you don't believe that Jesus resurrected, go to Jerusalem. There's over 500 people that have saw, saw him resurrected. Now, we can't go in our day and age when we read that and say, okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and find those people that saw him. But the very fact that he was saying it to people in a time that could have done it says he was telling the truth. He's, going, he's challenging them. You, I can almost think that there at least one or two people made the trip to Jerusalem to go talk to some eyewitnesses. The beauty of this whole thing, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And I've given sermons, you know, especially during the 
Resurrection Sundays, you know, the, they show all the proofs of the resurrection, how we know that it was there, how we know that it happened. And it's not denied. Even in historians will talk about that it, they will usually say it was reported that he res rose from the dead. You know, they don't like to say that he was because that's hard for them to, to admit. But they over and over say their leader was reported to raise from the dead and none of them found anybody who could disprove it. They might point to the Jewish leaders, you know, when they bribed the soldiers and said, well, you just tell the soldiers, you just tell everybody, while you slept, the disciples stole the body. And we've always told, we've talked about how stupid that, that whole testimony is uh, because none of us knows what happens when we're sleeping. Soldiers would not be sleeping when they're on guard duty because that would have been an executable, executable crime for them. So they wouldn't have been sleeping. And even if they had been, they wouldn't have known who did what while they slept. Uh, so, you know, that excuse goes out the window. You know, they go, well, they, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, that also would go out the window because the Pharisees would have immediately say, well, look how stupid these people are. They don't even know where the body was. Here, here it is. You know, over and over again, we know that the, the resurrection is something that is, is very true. You know, when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, I have no problem with the resurrection. That one's very strong in history. The one that's harder to prove would be virgin birth. That we have to take by faith. You know, and God said it was going to happen, so I believe that it happened. Because he could not have the seed of man because he would have been born a sinner if he had the seed of man. So he had to be born a virgin so that he could be perfect. Because we are born sinners. You know, and this is something that drives people nuts. We are born sinners with the sin nature wanting to sin. And anybody who's had a little baby knows that that baby is not a perfect, clean you know, innocent being. They're very demanding. They're very selfish. And all the way through their life, they're going to be selfish until we teach them not to be selfish, hopefully. And so we look at this and say, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that, that Luke is laying out. I'm giving you this ordered presentation. And we're going to be spending several months <laughs> going through this ordered presentation of the life of Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care, the fact that you died for our sins. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message that doesn't know you, we ask that today they will recognize that they are a sinner and accept your sacrifice for their sins and ask you to forgive them and then start living for you and find a church that teaches your word. And we just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him?
pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.